There is an initial lie that has percolated more over the last few months than Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn that decision dating back to 1973. We'll talk about that, believe it or not. And we'll also talk about maternity fatalities with the one and only Tanya Lewis Lee, director extraordinaire, producer extraordinaire. She'll know. First things first, this is about truth telling. I have no agenda. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what No Mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah! This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes I push the limit till it break The heart of the brave The soul of a legend With the will to be great Hold up Welcome <laughs> Ah What's up everybody Welcome to the latest edition Of No Mercy With yours truly Stephen A. Smith Love coming at you three times a week for at least an hour. That's what I like to do because I always got something on my mind. Uh, And I got to tell you something. Something that's been on my mind since June of 2022. And hasn't left my mind since that particular moment in time. Believe it or not. Is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now I know that's not a subject that you anticipate you'll ever hear me tackling. What the hell does Stephen A. have to say about Roe v. Wade? He not, he's not a woman. He don't have to give birth. What, what, what business is this of his? What is that about? I know there's a lot of people that will say something like that. So let me give you a little reminder about something. I've got two teenage daughters. I've got four older sisters. I have nine nieces. I have... About 90 living relatives remaining in my life. Aunts, cousins, second cousins, etc. About 80 of them are women. I'm also a young man who happens to be the youngest of six. Whose relationship with my father, let's just say it was nothing to brag, brag home about. Which essentially means that when you take that into account and the fact that my brother left home the second he had graduated from high school and entered the army. That leaves me with five women raising me. My mother, my four older sisters. So when the Supreme Court announced that it was overturning Roe v. Wade. A decision that was first instituted in 1973. Given women the right to an abortion, the right to make their own decisions in regards to abortion. The fact that that was overturned in the year 2022, June 24th, 2022, to be exact, it vexed me to the pro-lifers out there. I am no advocate for abortion. It is not a decision that I've ever had to be a part of. I'd like to believe it's a decision I would have never wanted to make. But this notion that you can be against abortion. But you can't be against abortion and still be pro-choice is foolish. You can be both. Because I am both. I don't believe that any man on earth has a right to tell a woman what to do with her body, period. It doesn't matter how I feel. It is between her and her God. That's what I believe it should be. And I believe that any man who feels that he has this inalienable right to literally, to literally impose his will upon a woman is one of the most degrading elements that has ever existed in the history of mankind. 
There is no excuse for it. There is no exception to it. There is no reason for it. It is selfish. It is self-righteous. And it is wrong. Now, if you're a woman out there, you know where I stand. But I'm not about to debate with you all about what you feel. I'm talking to the men. I don't believe we have any right to tell a woman what to do with her body. Nevertheless, we've done it anyway. As we continue to do on so many occasions. And you've got people capitalizing off of it right now. According to USA Facts, 15 states have passed new laws regulating access to abortion in the year 2022. 15 states. At least nine states restricted access to abortion in some way, shape, form or fashion. Six states expanded access to the procedure, by the way. It's important to point that out. We have Supreme Court justices of the United States of America. It's a 6-3 tilt to the right. In case those of you who don't know, now you know. Donald Trump during his presidency, even though he was never a Republican, never designated himself as a Republican before he took office. So clearly he just took that position to cater to the constituency that would ultimately vote him into office. And I can't say that was wrong because that's what happened and it worked. He did what the conservatives wanted him to do. He tilted the court to a majority. Something else that I want to say that's incredibly unpopular but needs to be mentioned is that I am a fan and I am deferential to the exceptional work and the greatness of former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul. But I also want to remind everybody that while she was sitting on the Supreme Court, there was a Democratic president in the White House. His name happened to be Barack Obama. And there were a lot of people during that time. And some speculated the White House administration, the Obama administration itself who were employing her, imploring her to retire. She refused. Because she wanted a woman to appoint her successor to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's been documented. It's been written. I ain't making it up. I got my producer extraordinaire Rashawn McDonald looking at me a little bit nervous oh my brother because he wants me to make sure I know what I'm talking about I've read it Wall Street Journal Washington Post New York Times the New Yorker Newsweek Politico Drudge Report I mean the list goes on I read it all I read it all and I'm telling you I ain't asking you I didn't tell you that's what she did I didn't tell you that's what the Obama administration did. I told you there were numerous reports that said so. You want to hold somebody accountable? Hold those people. All I did was read. But when I read it, I was very upset. Because I said to myself, if your Ruth Bader Ginsburg is exceptional as you were, as admirable and inspirational as you were, as a woman on a Supreme Court and a phenomenal work that you did. Do you realize how arrogant it was that you elected to hold on to your seat, assuming a woman was going to be the president of the United States in 2016? Never contemplating the risk you were taking that a conservative or somebody who tilts to the conservative side was going to beat Hillary Rodham Clinton. And therefore, your successor would be a conservative on the Supreme Court justice. Never thought about that. Never contemplated that. Do you know to this moment, to this day right now, has she made that decision? The court would might be tilted, but it would only be tilted 5-4 instead of 6-3. And you'd have a fighting chance. 
that maybe some way, somehow you could assuage or persuade a justice to lean with a liberal tilt. It didn't happen. And as a result, now the power has been put back to the states and the states have made their decision. Some of them, not all, some of them. And now we have women talking about their lives being endangered, talking about the risk that comes associated with abortions. We're hearing a whole bunch of stuff, but I got news for you. When you talk about women's health issues and the dangers associated with it, it ain't just about abortions. It's about maternal fatalities. What am I talking about? 2019, 2020, according to the Guttmacher Institute, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R, Guttmacher. I believe that's the correct pronunciation. If I'm not, if I'm wrong, it's my producer's fault. It's Rashad McDonald's fault. Blame him. It's not me. It's him. Okay? But the Guttmacher Institute reported that in the year 2019-2020, there were 1.8 million abortions in the United States. Of course, the abortion issue is not going anywhere. We'll be talking about that in the months and the years to come. But I want to bring something else to your attention. Because it's just a thought. It's just a thought. That ain't the only issue that women need to be concerned about. Especially black women. How about mothers dying in delivery rooms? Does that matter to any of y'all? Because last time I checked, even though black women are indiscriminately being negatively affected by deaths in the delivery rooms compared to their white female counterparts, last time I checked, when you're giving birth, you're giving birth. The same thing that can happen to one can happen to the other. So today is somebody else. Tomorrow it could be you. It could be your sister. It could be your wife, your girlfriend. It could be your colleague. It could be your cousin. It could be anybody. And it's something that we can't ignore. The medical system in this country is something that we're going to have to talk about. Land of the free, home for the brave, home of the brave. But mothers are dying in delivery rooms in the United States of America. According to the CDC, America the most developed nation in this world leads the world in maternity deaths. Infant mortality is predominantly caused by congenital disabilities. I'm reading. I'm not quoting. I mean, I'm reading. I'm not speaking extemporaneously. I'm not speaking because I have an opinion and I'm just, I'm giving you facts. Facts. Do you love your sister? Do you love your mama? Do you love your daughter? Do you love women? How does it feel? To hear those kind of things going on. Let me read you some notes that I had my extraordinary research department pull up for me. Because it ain't me just sounding good, ladies and gentlemen. They make me look good. Michael and Sherry, Stephen A. loves you. Let me tell you something. Infant mortality is predominantly caused by congenital disabilities, preterm birth and low birth weight, maternal pregnancy complications, sudden infant death syndrome and injuries such as accidental suffocation. Even HBO Max Touched on this hot button topic on the prequel of Game of Thrones. Did y'all see it? I never watched Game of Thrones. I might be the only fool on the planet Earth that didn't watch it. I never watched Game of Thrones. I saw one episode in all those seasons that they were on HBO. I saw one episode of Game of Thrones. Do you remember when that guy was fighting this big giant and was beating his butt and slicing his Achilles up and all of this other stuff? And then a guy got a hold of him and literally got on top of him and crushed his skull with his bare two hands. Remember that? That's the only episode I ever saw. And by the way, somebody was being put to death. They, put, they got put in front of the dragon and the dragon just fried them. 
Well, this is different. The prequel to the Game of Thrones. The much-anticipated House of Dragons series premiered to record-breaking viewership numbers, and it featured a childbirth scene that is being played out every day in this country. Men making decisions about women regarding childbirth. Sound familiar? The king, without a male heir, hopes his pregnant wife will birth a healthy son. Instead, when the delivery is afflicted, with gruesome complications, and the king must decide between saving his wife or the male baby, he predictably chooses his son. What ensues is a bloody, utterly horrifying scene of his wife screaming, bleeding, and being restrained as she dies giving birth to a baby that will also die within a day. Ladies and gentlemen, that's supposed to be a fantasy series. That's not supposed to be real life. But here's the reality. It's happening today in America where women's decisions are being made based on finances, ostensibly, supposedly, presumably, Reportedly, because hospitals make more money performing C-section than vaginal deliveries. I'm going to repeat that. Hospitals make more money performing C-sections than vaginal deliveries. Men are still telling women what to do with their bodies. We just brought that up when we brought up Roe v. Wade. And this is just the latest example of what's transpiring. What's really, really happening beyond the world of abortions? What's really, really happening? Why are mothers dying in delivery rooms? And why are the numbers disproportionately affecting black women negatively, more so than their white female counterparts? We need to know what's going on. We need to know why. Most importantly, we need to know how we can alleviate this problem, reach a resolution to help address this issue and bring attention to it and save an inordinate amount of black women that are being plagued with this atrocity. My next guest has a lot to say about this issue. She is the co-director and co-producer of the compelling documentary called Aftershock. Currently streaming on Hulu, she is the wife of Oscar-winning director, the one and only Spike Lee. She is the brilliant, wonderful Mrs. Tanya Lewis-Lee. She's up next on No Mercy with Stephen A. right here. Don't touch that dial. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Welcome back to No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. You know, this is not a subject I'm accustomed to tackling. A matter of fact, I've never had to tackle a subject like this before. Um, I don't even know how qualified I am to have this discussion, but I know this. I care. And I know that we all should care, especially when you take into consideration who our next guest is right now. In 2022, IndyWire featured my guest as one of the 22 rising female filmmakers to watch. She is a producer, a film director, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a women's health advocate. She co-directed and co-produced the compelling documentary entitled Aftershock, currently streaming on Hulu. The one and only Tanya Lewis Lee. Welcome to No Mercy with Stephen A. How are you? I'm, gr I'm good, Stephen A. Thank you for having me on today. The honor and privilege is all mine. I guess the first question that I would ask you, now that Aftershock has been on Hulu for a while, and obviously so many people have seen it, what kind of reaction have you been getting from this documentary that you did? 
Yeah, it's been, I have to say, it has been really amazing uh, on so many levels, right? So first, there's the community. I think that a lot of Black women, a lot of Black families are feeling validated. I think so much, so many of us experience some sort of um, paternalistic uh talking down to from doctors and healthcare providers, black women, one of the largest issues when it comes to um, maternal mortality and morbidity is that people do not feel seen and heard. Uh, and so I've heard from so many women uh, and so many families that they are like, oh my gosh, this this kind of thing happened to me or I was treated this way. And so, um, you know, they've been, it's been able to open conversations for people to talk about their trauma in ways that they never have before. Um, so that's been amazing. The other thing that's been awesome is that we've heard from a lot of hospitals, uh, insurance companies, med schools, uh, who want to use the film as a tool to have a conversation about how they can be better healthcare providers for all of us. So it has been really overwhelming and, and really wonderful. Obviously, the, the documentary uh, evolved to, to some degree anyway around the passing, the deaths of two lovely young ladies, Shimoni Gibson and Amber Rose Isaac, who passed away, obviously, uh, you know, attempting to give birth and what have you. When you talk about maternal mortality and morbidity and what have you, it, it was devastating to see that story. How did you find out about these two stories? So I first heard about Shimani uh, Gibson's passing away. Shimani passed away in October of 2019. And uh, in December of 2019, just two months after her passing, her family, her mother, Shawnee Benton Gibson, mm -hmm. and her partner, Amari Maynard, uh, put out an invitation on social media to have a celebration of her life and to also have a conversation with community around the issues of maternal uh, morbidity and, mor and maternal mortality. And so we saw that on Instagram and uh, reached out to Shawnee uh, asking her, Paula, my co-producer and co-director and I um, reached out to her asking her if we could film uh, that celebration of life. And she, she allowed us uh, to come in and, and film that celebration of life. Amber Rose Isaac passed away in April of 2020. And, you know, I think we first heard of Amber when she tweeted before she died. Amber mm. tweeted out her, about the poor health care that she was receiving. So I think mm. we first saw that tweet uh, and were struck by it. And then she passed away. Um, uh, Omari then reached out to Bruce, as he does when someone loses a partner to childbirth complications. If Omari hears about it, he mm -hmm. will reach out to that brother, offer support. Omari reached out to Bruce uh, and just started a conversation and then told him about the film. And Bruce decided to join us and allow us to uh, follow him as well. Amari and Bruce obviously were incredibly compelling figures in in in, in this documentary for obvious reasons. Uh, when you think about Shamani, who passed away two weeks after giving birth and what have you, I think not to say anybody's a star because there's not really much to celebrate about something like this, something so tragic. And we all get that. But Shamani Gibson's mother was something sensational. I can't I don't mm. know if I've ever encountered any parent being more compelling than she appeared in this documentary, obviously knowing you before you did all of this, you spoke to her. You spoke to her in depthly about what her feelings were, what she wanted to be portrayed in this documentary. What did she tell you she wanted the world to know about what you were doing here with this documentary? Yeah, Shawnee, Shawnee Benton Gibson is a... Uh, a force of nature in general. She's been someone who's been in the reproductive uh, justice community for a long time. As she says in the film, you know, why would she think she was exempt just because she had the knowledge, because she did have the knowledge. Uh, but, you know, Shawnee, I think first and foremost, 
She wanted people to know Shimani. She wanted people to know that Shimani was a beautiful woman. And yet, you know, Shani always says she wasn't perfect, but mm-hmm. she was a, 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 a daughter, uh, a partner, a sister, a member of a community. She wanted people to understand that there was a big community around Shimani. Um, and, and Shani wants, really wanted to get the word out about what was happening uh, in our communities around Black maternal health. Um, she remains really active. Uh, I think also she wanted to focus on what the solutions were. You know, I, I think we all went into the film and, and she is a partner. And I want to say that, you know, it was a real collaboration with mm-hmm. Shawnee, Bruce and Amari. Um, and Shawnee really was our guiding light. It was really Shawnee that sort of, once Shawnee agreed, then the men came, right? Mm-hmm. But it had to come through Shawnee first. Uh, and she wanted us to talk about what was going on, what the solutions are out there, and and how we can do better, do better as a as a society for all of our Black women. Talk to me about what you found out doing this documentary, as it pertains to a lack of care for women of a low a lower socioeconomic class. Really crystallize that for the listeners right now. Well, first, I do want to be clear that the issue of black maternal mortality and morbidity in the United States goes across socioeconomic lines. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what your education level is. It doesn't matter how financially well off you are. Black women who have graduate degrees, who live on higher socioeconomic levels, have a higher chance of dying from childbirth complications than white women living uh, closer to the poverty line with just a high school education. So what I really discovered and learned is that often these issues happen because Black women are not seen and not heard. Mm. As with Amber and Shimani, um, they went looking for help. They, they were not feeling well. First of all, most of these deaths happen postpartum. Most of these deaths are preventable. Uh, there has been a narrative that it is her fault, that she is poor, that she doesn't seek prenatal care, that she doesn't take care of herself. And what we discovered is that's not the case. Um, Um, Often women express postpartum some sort of um, discomfort. And Amber, actually during her pregnancy, was showing symptoms of something that could Mm -hmm. have been taken care of and she could have lived through her pregnancy and been fine. Uh, but, But her doctor did not listen when she went and said, I'm not feeling well. And so I would say, by and large, we were hearing that Black women are not seen and heard, and therefore, and people don't believe that that we really have the pain that we have when we say we have pain. Um, and that has a significant impact on our well-being. The other thing that I learned and discovered is that the United States is the only industrialized nation that does not have midwifery care at the center of women's health care and all of those other nations have better health outcomes than we do. How would midwifery uh, care be beneficial specifically to black women in this day and age? Highlight and illustrate what's the benefit of that that we're all missing and we're not hearing enough about. Right. So midwives. So first of all, OB-GYNs as doctors are surgeons first, right? So Mm -hmm. surgeons are trained to look for a problem and then go in and cut you. They are very much interested in over-medicalizing. I think what happens with doctors often, it's as soon as you get to the hospital, they want to give you something, do something. They want to intervene in your pregnancy. Midwives are trained to allow for the natural process of birthing and labor to happen. And they also uh, take time with you. So a midwife spends lots of time with a woman explaining to her what's going on with her body, letting her know so that she's empowered when she feels something that feels a little odd or maybe feels, you know, just different, like to, to pay attention to that. Um, and midwives are trained to be patient, like I said, and allow the natural birthing process to happen and to, to catch babies. Also, postpartum, midwives come visit women 
you know, often at home, they mm-hmm. come, they will visit you a week after, two weeks after, three weeks after. When a woman gives birth with a doctor at a hospital, she's usually not seen for six weeks uh, at postpartum, which mm-hmm. is often too late. And as I said, most of these deaths happen postpartum. So as a midwife qualified, if you have a problem to treat the problem or does that midwife facilitate you being heard by the medical professionals so they can help reach a resolution as to whatever problems you may be you may be having at that particular moment in time? Great question. Midwives are clinicians that can do everything a doctor can do except for operate on you. So a midwife often w- can can correct certain things, but if you get into and and midwives can even uh, care for women who are high risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are high risk, I think that midwives do work in concert with doctors, even if you're not high risk midwives work in concert with a doctor. Um, If something arises, a midwife can direct you to a doctor. As you saw in the film, you know, when Amber was not well, um, her partner, Bruce, reached out to to midwives to think about getting midwifery care. It was the midwife who said, well, I need your records. When she saw the records, she said, oh, no, you have to go to the hospital right away. So... I think that midwives sometimes can um, uh, course correct certain things, but they mm-hmm. can also work with a physician. Uh, and I think that's often a really great way for women to go. I'm struggling with something that you said, and it's making me very I, I, it, it's, a, it's a combination of anger. There's a level of, mm-hmm. uh, re, you know, reticence, apprehension, disgust, etc. When you talk about even black women who are affluent compared to white women who are not affluent and yet and still they're not being heard enough. Obviously people think racism. That's the first thing that's going to jump into your mind when that comes up. But I want to take this a step further as you did your investigation, as you probed and learned more and more about this, 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 as far as I'm concerned, this virus that's sifting through our community with what black women is being exposed to. I'm so ticked off about it just listening to you. What explanations did they provide to explain or justify the lack of listening, the lack of hearing when it came to black or when it comes to black women compared to their white female counterparts? So, yeah, so the answer really is racism. Uh, uh, you know, the, the answer is race and racism. Um, you know, we, we talk about the system, uh, especially of gynecological care, is founded on racism. In the film, we talk about how um, in the United States, the uh, gynecology was founded on the experimentation of black enslaved women, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and it continues to this day. And unfortunately, if you are a black woman of a lower socioeconomic status who probably needs to be cared for by the most experienced people, you tend to get cared for by those that have the least experience, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, you, you tend to be cared for by, by those that are residents, that are learning, that have not dealt with people that much, um, which, which puts you into, um, you know, into a situation where your care is not great. Mm-hmm. And then if you're a black woman of means, again, people don't believe us when we talk about our pain. I mean, I have a good friend of mine whose husband is on the board of one of the best hospitals in New York City. And she was telling me that when she gave birth in that hospital, she was not feeling right and they were not listening to her. And she Mm. had to get nasty with the staff about how she was feeling because they just did not believe her. Um, And so racism has a a serious impact on our health and well-being, uh, certainly when it comes to childbirth and uh, women's health care. And that permeates through everything. You know, one of the things that also angered me while I was watching this documentary, Aftershock, currently streaming on Hulu as we speak, I remember you highlighting how 
there were an abundance of black women who were actual midwives. And then the next thing you know, the white establishment, the white female establishment, to be specific, recognized how profitable it was for them to take over the profession. Got it. And that's what they ended up doing. When you reflect on when you learned about that, what did that tell you as well? I know racism is simplistic and we don't have to belabor that. That's definitely obvious. But more than that, what did it tell you about our society as a whole and our healthcare system at that particular moment in time, even to this day? Well, I got to tell you, not only did they take the economy of midwifery and women's health care from black women, but that also was a destabilizing uh, force to our communities because midwives were very powerful as well. They were paid and they, I mean, people, I've talked to midwives who would say, oh yeah, if you had a problem, you know, in the community back, back in the day, you go to the midwife to, to deal with that. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talk about in the film, how George Washington paid his midwife because she, uh, you know, was so important to bringing, you know, forth the, the, the labor force for his plantation, but also just in general caring for people. So, you know, I, I also discovered that midwives, the training period for midwives of apprenticeship was four years. So doctors took not only the economy, but everything that midwives did, the training, the residency of four years that came from midwives. Mm. They took everything they learned from midwives. And then they turned around and created a campaign saying that midwives were dirty, they're dangerous and all of this to scare everybody away from midwives, send us into the hands of doctors and hospitals. Um, so yeah, it, it's and it, and it still permeates today. And, it, and it's so frustrating because the midwifery uh, practice is now 87% white. So it was extremely effective in getting rid of black midwives who were providing not just health care, but all sorts of care to our communities. And and I think we, we really need to um, figure out how we bring mid, midwives back. I think we would all be better for it uh, mm-hmm. across the board in our families if we if we can if we can figure out how to build back the midwifery workforce especially of black women. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Unfortunately, money plays a significant role. It's played a significant role in slavery. It's played a significant role in almost everything that we do, economics. And when you talk about midwifery um, and you think about the cost that comes along with it, how daunting of a task do you find it to be in your mind that that is something, that is a profession that ultimately would be embraced and ultimately dominated by the black female populace in the manner that it once was? Well, I think it would be very difficult to go back to the way it once was in terms of having black women dominate the practice. But I do think that there are ways in which we can bring forth uh, midwifery programs. There are schools out there now that could be offering all kinds of um, tuition uh, uh, and scholarships for for black midwives. There are HBCUs that I think that could, uh, you know, bring uh, midwifery programs to their schools. I think that there are foundations and uh, people out there who could fund uh, some of the education that comes with midwifery if we really decide that as a nation that's what we want to do. Because I just want to mention again, I just want to make this point again, that the United States is the only developed nation in the world that does not have midwifery care at the center of women's health care, and those nations have better birthing outcomes. It is a proven mm-hmm. uh, fact that mm-hmm. midwifery care is better care. So if we decide we care about women, 
Black women especially, we mm-hmm. can fix this thing if we put all of our resources into it, if we make sure then also that insurance covers midwifery care, because a lot of times insurance does not cover midwifery care. Uh, there, there are also doulas, which are different from midwives. Yes. Doulas are more advo- advocates for pregnant people, pregnant and birthing people. We need more doulas. And if we decide that we want to change the healthcare workforce for women in this country, we can do it. Um, it's just we need all hands on tech to make sure that happens. United States, the most developed nation in the world. Obviously, they have the means, they have the dollars uh, to get something like this done. What explanation was given to you as to why midwifery is not a uh, significant proponent in the healthcare system? What have they told you about that, if anyone? It, it's interesting because what I am hearing is that they're, they're, you know, people are still afraid. I mean, that campaign that was waged against midwives uh, back in the uh, 1800s uh, was powerful and it remains today. People are afraid. They don't, they don't know what a midwife is. They think of mm. them as witches. And I think that we need to witches. do a lot of education so that people understand what a midwife really is. Uh, but at, at the same time, what, what leaves me a little optimistic is that there are physicians out there, physicians out there, um, OB-GYNs who like working with midwives, who have learned how midwives can actually be helpful to their practice. So if we can figure out how to bring everyone together, I, I think it could work for all of us. You brought up the word witches. Where did they get that from? Tell me who on earth was saying that and how far back did that go? What the hell? What the hell is that? Well, I mean, again, midwives, you know, they they did a lot of things. They were healers. Right. And they used herbs, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and and to heal women from and and everybody, not just women, women and men across the board. Um, the other thing I'll say here is that I think that, you know, in birthing, birthing is also a, a very spiritual thing when it's, when it is, when it, when the circumstances allow it to be. And what I mean by that is instead of being in a very sterile environment, you know, when you think about birthing, you're sort of, you are sort of one foot in another realm coming into this realm. And I mm-hmm. think that midwives historically have understood that, respected it, talked about it in that way, which can freak some people out uh, who don't have that sort of spiritual connection. Uh, And I think that's really where this idea of just trying to say that midwives are weird and witches because they they have herbs and, you know, maybe they they say things during birthing that that people don't understand comes from ignorance, Stephen A. Absolutely. Flagrant ignorance. No question about it. Let me ask you this question. Just a few nuts and bolts questions right here. What type of questions should women, should black women be asking their OBGYNs? It's a great question. And I, I would say, first and foremost, you know, women, black women need to find the healthcare provider that they feel most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So no matter what question that you ask, if if the person that you are asking the question of dismisses your question, is not interested in what you have to say, is making you feel like, like you don't know or that you're ignorant or stupid, then you need to look for another healthcare practitioner, number one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Number two, you know, I would say, you know, really look for the healthcare practitioner that is empowering you um, and and making sure that that you are the, the one that's directing your healthcare practitioner should be asking you, what do you want for your birth plan? Uh, how do you want your labor to go? What are the things that are most important to you throughout your process? Um, I think those kinds of things are, are really important. Um, and then I would say, you know, just hopefully what you do is you establish a relationship with your health healthcare provider so that anything that comes up, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of tired. Is this normal? Um, you know, that anything comes up that they are there to answer any question that, that you may have, Mm. you know, I'm thinking about what we were talking about a few minutes earlier when we we're talking about black women uh, and how they were experimented on basically to perfect gynecology. What can we do to ensure we're still not subject to this as we try to bring healthy babies into the world? 
Well, I think a lot of people don't know that you can, you can, when you present to a hospital, if you do not want to um, have a resident learner uh, working with you, you can say that you, that's not what you want. Right. Um, and you can ask for my next question, uh, a yeah. doctor that has, has experience. Um, so I would say that I would say also, um, you know, people cannot touch you, do things to you without your permission. Uh, so whether they ask your permission or not, they should, you, you have the right to say no to treatment that does not feel right to you. And I know it's difficult as black and brown people, uh, because once you're in the system, it can be hostile to you and there are real consequences, right? I mean, I've heard stories of people who have questioned the authority of doctors and hospitals, and then they call child services on people. So it does get tenuous, but I do think that you know, we just have to be remember that we can ask for the right kind of care for ourselves and, and make mm. sure that we have the kind of doctors that we want um, working on us. And again, if it doesn't feel right, then then we need to go and find new healthcare providers. And I know it's not an easy thing to do. I don't say that flippantly. Um, you know, sometimes we're in circumstances where the care that, you know, if we, if we need it right now, it's, it's what's in front of us. Um, but I think mm -hmm. we do need to start asking and and demanding the right kind of care. As a black woman, do you believe based on your investigation, based on your documentary, the information that you've gathered and accumulated and being a black woman and a mother, do you believe at this point in time, based on based on what you've learned, that it might be time for black women to move away from hospital births? Well, what I would say to that is I think that what we need to we need a cultural shift in how we think about birthing. And I would say that. As a black woman, as a woman, we need to understand that there is choice in how we birth. So if, if a woman wants to birth in a hospital with a, with a doctor and, and that feels right to her, that's what she should do. But I also think it's important that we think about, well, maybe a birthing center could be an okay situation for me. Maybe go investigate it. Um, I, I think that we should shop around. I think we should think about maybe, maybe even birthing at home. Uh, mm -hmm. could be could be the right option for me with the right midwife and the right doula and the right circumstances. Um, but I think that thinking about hospital birth with a doctor as the default um, should change. And we need to be really open-minded and seek out the circumstances and the people around us that empower us to have the kind of birth uh, that is the best birth. And that's what we did in the film. I mean, we followed um, a woman named Felicia Ellis who thought she was going to give birth in a hospital, as she says, the normal way, the way everybody does. And even at 35 weeks, she said, you know what, let me, let me investigate. And she told us later, after hearing about Amber's story, she decided to maybe go see if a birthing center option might be better for her. She made that decision. She ended up giving birth in the birthing center and had, you know, an amazing, beautiful, supported birth. So uh, I, mm -hmm. I think we really need to look and see what's the best option for, for oneself. Respectfully, may, may I ask that as a mother, as a wonderful black woman, did you ever find yourself having to deal with any issues yourself when you were pregnant? I did. And, and, you know, I was lucky. Uh, I did, I didn't know about midwives. Uh, when I, my children are now 27 and 25. I did not know. Uh, I gave birth in a hospital and, um, you know, with my daughter, I had the, the anesthesiologist, I had an epidural, Mm -hmm. The anesthesiologist gave me too much. I, I knew it because uh, I was, you're supposed to be just numb from the waist down. At a right. point, my lips were going numb. And mm. I told her, I said, it's too much anesthesia. You need to turn it down. And she was like, oh, well, if I turn it down, you know, you're going to feel pain. I was like, but I'm telling you, I cannot feel my lips. 
and I had to get nasty. And I mean, this is the thing that's so frustrating as a black woman, right? Then you have to become the angry black woman to get people to listen to you. Um, but that was the only way to get her to turn the anesthesia off for me. And my mother and my sister were in the room with me and, and they were really nervous. They started giving me oxygen, um, you know, but, but ultimately she did turn the anesthesia off, but not until I, I really kind of gave it, gave her the business, you know? Mm. I asked those questions because even in the year 2022, for you to come out with a documentary on this subject, it's a crying shame that even in the year 2022, we still find ourselves having to deal with these kind of problems. And now, there's a different kind of problem, but some would say it all rolls into the same bowl when we think about the overturning of Roe versus Wade in June of, of this year. My question to you would be when you first learned of that decision, what were your feelings, especially in the aftermath of you having done this documentary? Well, I, I was in disbelief, honestly, um, that that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. I don't understand why the Supreme Court even felt the need to to address that particular case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as you say, here we are in 2022, and the rates are, of, of maternal mortality are going up. So my daughter has a higher chance of dying from childbirth complications than I did uh, when I had her. And now you overturn Roe versus Wade, there was recently a study um, that just that came out saying that maternal death is going to go up for the general population, 21%, for black women, 33%. Um, it has been proven that maternal um, death sort of went down uh, with uh, Roe. So, so I, I don't I can't quite understand what we're doing because the overturning of Roe is ensuring that there is going to be more death of women. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you care about life, I don't understand why you don't care about the lives of women. I mean, because that's just been a proven a proven point. It's disheartening. It's it's upsetting. Um, and it's really frustrating. And I get really angry, actually, um, especially at the 52% of white women who voted for Donald Trump twice, because that's how we got here. <laughs> and mm. so to for them to turn around and say, oh, wow, I didn't know this would happen. If you voted for Donald Trump, you voted for the Dobbs decision in my mind. Um, so I, I am, I'm really frustrated. I'm, I'm worried about women. I'm worried about the criminalization of women who have miscarriages. I'm worried about the delay of care for, for women, especially black women. Uh, and, and I'm worried about, you know, more deaths happening, um, you know, because of the decision. I think it's, I think it's devastating. Last question. If there is a light at the end of the tunnel, I have no doubt in my mind that Tanya Lewis Lee will know what it is and know where to direct us all. Where would that be if it even exists in your mind? So I do think there is a light. I do remain optimistic. And, and, and the reason why I remain optimistic is because there are people out there like Shawnee, Amari, and Bruce mm -hmm. who are on the ground, who will keep uh, the drumbeat going, who will keep reminding us, who will keep uh, the pressure on and the accountability of our legislatures because the laws do matter. Uh, and there is a there are a group of bills going through Congress now called the Momnibus Bills um, that can help with, as we talked about earlier, midwifery care, doula care, um, uh, uh, covering women with Medicaid a year postpartum. Uh, so there, there are those things that can happen in place. I feel like even with the devastating Dobbs decision, or maybe because of it, people will kind of wake up and think about what alternatives there are out there. I think there is a conversation happening around midwifery. Um, I know that the reproductive justice, uh, the women's reproductive justice movement has been active and they're going to become more active. 
And so I, I, I do believe that there can be better outcomes. And now maybe because of Dobbs, you know, people will be waking up and um, out there doing the work to make for better outcomes for all of us. I had no doubt in my mind that this would be incredibly compelling and edifying because it's you. But I had no idea how great of an interview you would be. I've learned so much. I'm so grateful and thankful for your time. I'm so grateful and thankful for the information you gave my audience. And I really, really appreciate you, the co-director and co-producer for the compelling documentary Aftershock, currently streaming on Hulu, the wonderful Tanya Lewis Lee. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen A. I, I, I mean so much to be here on your show talking about this. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Thanks so much again, Tanya. Lewis, Lee, there's a reason you didn't hear me mention Spike Lee once during my interview with her, because she is formidable in her own right. And this documentary, Aftershock, currently streaming on Hulu, is something to behold. I mean, I just don't even know how to put it into words. Some of the things that I wrote down and some of the notes that my research department gathered from watching the docu- you know, the documentary, Talking about enslaved women with midwives on plantations delivering not only their own children, but also the children of others. And George Washington actually paid enslaved midwives so they could continue to deliver property to maintain a plantation. Now, that's intriguing and heartbreaking. Now, after all of that, when the OBGYN industry became populated with white men and white women in this country, started to become nurses and midwives, black midwives were vilified and hunted and jailed and said to be dirty and unskilled. Ladies and gentlemen, black women have been experimented on to perfect the profession of gynecology. That's what this documentary is stating. During slavery, your worth was about your womb or about what your womb could produce for their plantation. One mom felt like a black woman having a baby is like a black man at a traffic stop with the police. You got to pay attention to what's going on every step of the way. That's what one black mother said. Another said in the hospital, appointments are quick. They aren't intimate. You don't have time to build that trust. Hard to find someone we're comfortable with. These are the kind of things. These are the kind of questions that were brought up in Aftershock. Highlighting a level of urgency all of us should pay attention to. A level of urgency none of us should ignore. She brought up the Dobbs. The Dobbs Act. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's a landmark decision of the United States Supreme Court in which the court held that the Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion. Why did she bring that up? Because I asked about Roe v. Wade. And while she was lamenting the state of affairs with women dying in the delivery room who happened to be African-American, I couldn't help but ask her about Roe v. Wade and how she felt about that and how disappointing that decision was to her. No matter what you believe, ladies and gentlemen, it might be an unpopular position for me to take. But my position is I'll reiterate what I said at the top of the show. I'm not down for abortion. I'm against it. But I am a complete proponent of a woman's right to choose. I believe I can be both. And I'm not going to listen to anybody tell me I can't. Because I'm a man. And I don't believe I have a right to tell a woman what to do with her body. I believe that's her choice. Regardless of how I feel. And what does that mean, ladies and gentlemen? That means that at the end of the day, I have a sensibility. I have a sensitivity. I believe certain things, but in the same breath knows it's not my right to impose those beliefs on other human beings who have to deal with things I would never have to deal with in my life. That's the reality. And because that's the reality, think about what it calls for us to do. Elevate our level of sensitivity and sensibilities. 
Be thoughtful of our, of our fellow woman and man. Think about them, not just us. Care about them, not just us. Be thoughtful, be caring. Be empathetic and sympathetic. More importantly, compromise. That's what matters. And that's not what's going on right now. We're many weeks or even a month or two away from an election. People will be elected into the office that will have an opportunity and a right via the U.S. Constitution to govern and legislate our lives. What are we going to do about it? We're going to sit idly by, don't go to the polls and then complain every time a decision comes down that we don't like. Or are we going to make our voices heard? Because if you really want to ask what Stephen A. is really trying to get to here, what's his, what's really his point? Why in God's name would he address these issues? It's because I want us to commit ourselves to making a difference instead of leaving it up to others to do so for us. That's all. Ladies and gentlemen, you'd be surprised what I could deal with if a vast majority of our American citizens said, this is what we want. If we're a law abiding nation and we're not inflicting violence and bodily harm upon upon other human beings. And it's just a rule of law that governs all of us equally, civilly, fairly. I'm down. I'm go. I'm good for it. Some places, you know, something people talk about your Second Amendment rights, right to bear arms. That's a subject I'll get into. Someday, very soon. But I got news for you. I live in New York City. I obey its laws. Its gun laws in New York City and the state of New Jersey are vastly different from the laws in Texas, Florida, Arizona. And you know what I do when I go to those laws, to to those states? I obey their laws. It's very simple. The people have spoken. In this part of the country, this is how they feel. And that is that. It's a law applicable to all of us. White, black, Asian, Latino, Native American, doesn't matter. It's applicable to all of us. That's not the case with abortion rights. That's not the case with maternity fatalities. That affects one segment of our populace, not all. And since it doesn't affect all, it only affects that one segment of our populace. I personally believe it should be up to them to make that decision, meaning women. Ladies and gentlemen, real quick, let me give you a little quick sports analogy. Because we all know Stephen A., even though I'm extending my boundaries beyond the world of sports, we all know my sports background. Did you know something about this? Look at me when I'm talking to you, Rashawn. Did you know this about me? Did you know that I don't believe men should be allowed to coach in the WNBA? I hate it. If women If there are no women coaching in the NBA, why the hell should men be coaching in the WNBA? I mean, don't men have enough jobs? And women can't coach? Of course they can. Of course they can. Why aren't women left to monopolize the WNBA? You see how I think? Fair is fair. Why we got to have it all? Why we got to make all the decisions? Why can't we be fair minded and thoughtful and sincere enough to appreciate respect and dare I say deify the power of women? Hey, fellas, I got a bunch of men. I got two beautiful women in this studio. One's my extraordinary writer, Sherry McCovey. The other is. My executive personal, my personal executive assistant, who is my right hand. She is my everything. Her name is Samatra Hawkins. But I ain't talking to y'all. I'm talking to the men. Right here. Terry. 
Michael, Rashawn, Bruce, talking to you too. All of y'all are married. Who runs your household? We all know it's the women. Men ain't got no damn rights. We want the big piece of chicken. We want five minutes of fame to do what we want to do 5% of the time. Five, 5%. We know the 95% is yours. Because you're smarter. You're more thoughtful. You're more introspective. You're more disciplined. We know this as men. So what the hell are we doing thinking we could tell a woman what to do with her body? You a conservative, you an independent, you a liberal, and you are a woman, and y'all are arguing amongst yourselves about what you want to do? Cool. Give me the majority opinion, and I'm flowing with it. Although I believe in a woman's right to choose. But more profound than that, what I'm trying to say is, as men, it's the one thing we should not have a right to choose. And that is what happens with a woman's body. Aftershock on Hulu showed you. This has been going on since slavery. In the year 2022, Tanya Lewis Lee highlighted for us how it's still going on now. What are we going to do about it? Somebody please let me know. I know I'm synonymous with sports, but guess what? I told you. You don't have to know sports to know mercy. Stephen A. Smith signing off until the next episode. Peace and love. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts. Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss